Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Hello, this is Adam Paulson welcoming you to this bite-sized bio webinar, which today is sponsored by Merck KGAA Darmstadt, Germany. The life science business of Merck KGAA Darmstadt, Germany operates as Millipore Sigma in the US and Canada. Today's presentation is titled Jump into 3D Organoids, Basic Culture Techniques and Advanced Applications, and is being presented by Dr. Carolina Sierra from Millipore Sigma and Dr. Silvia Boch from Hub Organoids. Dr. Carolina Sierra is a scientist in the Cell Biology R&D Department at Millipore Sigma in Southern California. She received her PhD in Microbiology and Immunology from the University of Texas Medical Branch, after which she joined the Gastroenterology Division at Vanderbilt University Medical Center as a postdoctoral fellow. Carolina then became a faculty member, with her research focusing on H. pylori-induced inflammation and gastric carcinogenesis, using patient-derived organoids as models to study host-pathogen interactions and novel chemopreventative strategies for gastric adenocarcinoma. In her current role, she evaluates the development of advanced cell culture products, with an emphasis on patient-derived three-dimensional organoid cultures. Dr. Sylvia Boch is Chief Scientific Officer at Hub Organoids. She received her PhD in 2006 at the University of Barcelona, Spain, working in the hospital clinic in the laboratory of Professor Jörg Ferrer, where she conducted functional genetic analysis to understand the transcriptional role of MODI genes in pancreatic beta cells. She subsequently joined the Hubrecht Institute in Utrecht, the Netherlands, as a postdoctoral fellow, where she established an in vitro organoid model for human pancreatic cancers, before joining Hub in 2014 as one of the founding scientists. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions that you have into the question box which appears on the top right panel of your screen, and I'll put them to Carolina and Sylvia at the end. Details of how to access the on-demand recording of this webinar will be sent to you by email shortly. So now over to you, Carolina, for your presentation. Thank you, Adam, for the introduction. Uh, today, I would like to tell you about Millipore Sigma organoid lines uh, and protocols. To begin, uh, we will go over some basic organoid culture techniques and tips in case that you are starting uh, to work with organoids or are planning to include them in your research projects. And I will also introduce uh, our organoid portfolio. Let's start uh, by talking about the advantages uh, of 3D over uh, 2D cultures. 
we know that the architecture of tissues uh, influences function and phenotype. In vivo, multiple cell lineages are interacting with each other and also with the matrix. And in those tissues, the cells are exposed to mechanical stress, um, as well as nutrient and oxygen availability. All of these characteristics are more closely uh, recapitulated in 3D rather than in 2D cultures. We also know that uh, bringing a new drug into the market is a long time. It takes a long time and effort, and over 90% of the new drugs will fail along this process. 3D models can be useful uh, at the preclinical stage, for example, to detect uh, early toxicity that is usually not observed in 2D models. And they will also contribute uh, to the reduction of animal uh, model use during drug development. Organoids are three-dimensional in vitro cultures derived from stem cells that self-organize to generate structures that resemble and function similarly to the tissues of origin. The stem cells can be obtained from adult tissues, as shown here in the left. In the case of humans or animals, they can be derived from small biopsies or surgical resections. They can also be generated from inducible or embryonic stem cells, and in this case, the cells need to undergo a differentiation process to obtain the desired cell, of, uh, cell lineage. In both cases, the organoids are embedded in a base membrane matrix like matrigel, and they will um, form um, structures with different morphologies depending on the tissue of origin. Organoids are very good models to recapitulate patient pathology. Uh, for example, when they are derived from tumors, organoids resemble the patient responses uh, to chemotherapeutic agents. Uh, they have been also used um, to study uh, host responses after viral or bacterial infections. And one of the examples is that uh, in vitro culture of uh, norovirus, was very challenging before the advent of organoid technology, and that hindered the study of its biology and infectious mechanism. Now, human intestinal organoids are used uh, to efficiently cultivate norovirus from stool samples and also to propagate these cultures indefinitely. Organoid biobanks are now available and they include a variety of tissue sources as well as pathologies. They can be used uh, for um, screening during drug development and also for personalized medicine to identify the most effective treatment for a specific patient. Another exciting use of organoids is tissue regeneration. Implantation of uh, cholangiocyte organoids into mice have shown that they uh, self-organize into bile duct-like tubes. There are multiple advantages as well as limitations associated with 3D culture models. Within the advantages, we have that they mimic complex in vivo cellular heterogeneity and structure, and that makes organoids good uh, tools to study uh, human disease. 
they can be cryopreserved and expanded over multiple passages, and that has allowed the creation of the biobanks. Organoids can be genetically manipulated using, for example, CRISPR technology. And it has been shown that they provide a more accurate drug screening with um, results that are more reflective of the toxicity and resistance observed uh, in vivo in humans. And that's why they are very good tools for personalized medicine. Within the limitations, we have their heterogeneity. They have different formation efficiencies and morphologies, and there is going to be patient-to-patient -patient variation. Qualification of the reagents is usually needed in order to reduce load-to-load -load variation, and this is going to be important uh, for consistent uh, culture conditions. Organoids uh, come in different uh, shapes and sizes, and that represents a difficulty when designing high-throughput assays. We also um, need customized readouts because most of our techniques and protocols were developed uh, thinking in two-dimensional cultures. We have very detailed protocols and data sheets in our website that will provide all the information that you need uh, to successfully culture organoids in your lab. Depending on the type of organoid, you will need different supplements, uh, inhibitors, and growth factors. Um, but some of the reagents are shared, and one of those reagents is an extracellular matrix. The most common one is matrigel. Uh, it supports uh, robust organoid proliferation, and uh, we recommend that if you are new to uh, growing organoids, just start with matrigel. But uh, there are other animal-derived ECM alternatives, alternatives, I'm sorry, as well as uh, hydrogels with defined composition that can be used. Organoids are resuspended in the ECM, and then they are plated um, as domes in tissue culture plates, as shown in here. Another important component in the culture media uh, is the culture media, I'm sorry. And it is usually prepared using a, a basal base rich media like DMEM F12 plus, and then is supplemented uh, with growth factors present either in condition uh, media or recombinantly produced. Most of the organoids will require Win3A, responding uh, and nogging and or nogging to allow proliferation of the stem cell compartment. The use of high quality and qualified growth factors is crucial for a successful organoid uh, culture. We currently offer responding as well as the LWRN condition media which uh, contains uh, the three growth factors, uh, wind, uh, responding, and nogging. And in the coming months, uh, we will also have a wintry condition media alone in our catalog. Uh, our medias undergo quality control that include sterility and endotoxin uh, testing. We also do ELISA for quantification of the growth factors in order to assure a consistent level uh, between loads. For WIN3A, we also perform an activity assay and have shown similar or higher activity present in our media as compared with other products. Additionally, every lot is evaluated in a functional assay to demonstrate efficient organoid growth. 
Another uh, critical component uh, to ensure successful expansion of the organoids is uh, occupancy and passing ratios. When we talk about uh, occupancy, uh, we refer to the area of the matricial dome that contains organoids. The image on the right is a dome at 90% occupancy. In other words, 90% of the total matricial dome is covered with organoids. We recommend plating organoids at approximately 40% occupancy and passing them when they reach 90% or slightly uh, lower. About the passing ratio, organoids do not proliferate very well when they are plated too sparsely. And um, we have images here in the bottom to suggest, uh, to show the suggested passing ratio. For example, here in the left, we have a dome uh, with very high occupancy, and we suggest passing this one to four. But if the dome looks more that the one, like one, the one here on the right, we uh, recommend lowering the uh, ratio to uh, two. Um, but keep in mind that these ratios can be different from uh, for other organoid lines. The specific example that I'm showing here is for colon organoids, but all, all of this information is going to be included in the data sheet. We already discussed um, occupancy and passing ratios, but how do you decide, how do you decide uh, the best time to pass your organoids? Here we have an example of organoids that grow and generate uh, very complex structures. The images uh, between day 10 and 12 uh, show the optimal appearance for passing. If you wait too long, for example, at day 14, there is an increased number of organoids with dark, dark centers uh, indicating accumulation of dead cells uh, in the lumen. Later, for example, at day 22, the organoids are already undergoing apoptosis and most of the cells will, will not be uh, viable. Here we have two additional examples of organoid with cystic and compact morphology. Similar to the previous slide, you want to pass the organoids when they still have clear centers and the cell compartment of the culture is still capable of, of generating new organoids. Once the organoids are growing well, you may want to start characterizing your populations. And we have a detailed protocol for whole mount staining in our website. This technique allows the visualization of the 3D structure. And also by doing multicolor staining, it's possible to perform colocalization studies or to evaluate polarity by using a staining for proteins differentially localized at the apical or basolateral cell compartments. Our organoid lines are characterized before launching the products. Here we show expression of CDX2, which is a posterior hindgut marker, and also expression of ECAT herein as a general epithelial marker. Carbonic anhydrase 4 is a colon-specific marker, and these are uh, staining. This staining was performed in the human iPSC-derived uh, colon organoids. 
as I mentioned at the beginning of the presentation, one of the advantages of using uh, organoids is the possibility to continuously expand these primary cells. But in order to achieve this, you will need to generate frozen stocks that you can come back uh, to recover at lower passages. Uh, for each organoid line, uh, we have um, detailed protocols for cryopreservation, but uh, there are some common procedures. Uh, some of the organoids are first dissociated to generate smaller fragments and, they, and then they frozen. In other cases, the organoids are frozen as whole or complete 3D structures. One key step is selecting the right time point uh, to freeze or to cryopreserve. We recommend uh, freezing when the organoids um, are still in the proliferative state before they reach the plateau and start to decay, as I showed in earlier slides. Once they are resuspended in the cryopreservation media, we place the tubes inside a freezing container and store them at minus 80 for at least 24 hours. And this is to achieve a low rate of cooling before transferring to liquid nitrogen for long-term storage. Now, uh, I would like to go over our organoid portfolio. We have a comprehensive gastrointestinal biobank uh, with 55 patient-derived organoid lines, or PDOs uh, for short. They were derived uh, from different areas of the GI tract, including colon, duodenum, ileum, rectum, and stomach. We offer PDOs obtained from healthy donors and also from patients uh, with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. Our organoids have been characterized at the transcriptomic level and RNA-seq data is available online. All our lines are cryopreserved at the lowest passage possible and we perform quality control of the frozen stocks uh, to ensure high viability at recovery. As previously mentioned, each line comes with a detailed protocol for recovery, passage and cryopreservation. In addition to the PDOs, we also offer human iPSC-derived colon organoids. Our GI organoids have been characterized uh, to confirm the expression of the general enterocyte uh, marker billing, as shown in here for the duodenum and colon uh, PDOs. Duodenum-derived PDOs uh, show positive staining for PDX1 and GATA4, which are markers uh, for anterior intestine. Colon-derived organoids were negative for those two markers as expected. SADB2 is a protein highly expressing colorectal epithelium, and the staining was positive in the colon PDOs, but not in the duodenum organoids. This staining uh, confirms uh, the appropriate tissue source of our uh, organoids. We also have launched uh, eight lines of uh, patient-derived uh, lung organoids. These include six uh, adenocarcinomas and two squamous cell carcinomas. We have samples uh, derived from the primary tumor as well as from metastatic tissue. These lines also have RNA-seq uh, data available online and similar to the GI uh, biobank, we offer complete protocols. 
um, our portfolio also includes a detailed differentiation protocol uh, to generate uh, airway epithelial lung organoids from human iPSCs. The long videos can have cystic or compact morphologies as shown in these bright field images. We confirm the expression of the epithelial markers EPCAN and patent cytokeratin, as well as the specific uh, long marker surfactant protein C, which is expressed preferentially in alveolar cells. Long organoids derived from adenocarcinomas express specific markers, including cytokeratin 7 and TTF1, as well as the airway goblet cell marker MUC5AC. As you can observe in the bottom panels, those markers are not expressed in the squamous cell carcinoma derived organoids. But these organoids express the specific markers cytokeratin 5 and P. 63, which are negative in the adenocarcinoma derived PDOs. These uh, results show that organoids recapitulate the marker expression of the tissues um, of origin. We have new PDO models coming soon. Um, in one, uh, one of our models is going to be pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma derived organoids, which differ in RAS uh, mutations. And we will also have an expansion of the GI biobank to include uh, colorectal cancer organoids. Thank you for your attention. And to finish, I would like to acknowledge the members of the team for the contribution to this work. And now I will pass um, this to Sylvia, who will uh, give us some updates about the application of organoids. Thank you for a very insightful presentation, Carolina. And now over to you, Sylvia, for your presentation. Thanks for the introduction and thanks to the audience for uh, making the time to join us today. So my presentation will be uh, about how uh, HAP organoids is uh, translating these patient-derived organoids that uh, has been introduced by Carolina before in uh, drug development. So with this slide, we try to represent the challenge that we are facing uh, when developing drugs to treat patients. We know that there is a high percentage of compounds that do not reach the final stage and that it takes a lot of time and money to develop them. And we believe that we can improve this process by using patient-derived organoids uh, to, bridge, um, to, 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 to bridge the gap between the clinic and the patients that we need to treat in the hospitals and the models that are used on the preclinical phases where the drugs are developed. And we believe that patient-derived organoids can improve this process because they are clinically relevant models for the preclinical stages. So in this slide, we just summarize um, a bit of the milestones of our organization and our technology in terms of drug development. So as also mentioned by the previous presenter, there are different types of organoids. And in our technology, focus on the uh, adult stem cell derived organoids. So everything, indeed, everything started in 2007 when LGR5 was identified as an uh, adult stem cell marker in the intestine of uh, mouse epithelium. Uh, by Nick Barker in the lab of Hans Clevers. 
and then by indeed the development of the first um, organoid culture with mouse intestine in 2009 by Toshiro Sato, also in the lab of Hans Klerwitz. And then actually two years later, with the development of the human uh, derived organoid model. So actually after these key discoveries, uh, our organization was uh, funded with the intention to translate this technology to industry and to provide this relevant platform for drug development. So to develop solutions uh, to improve drug development. So actually we have a, a relevant milestones uh, for the past years about how indeed our uh, technology has been able to contribute indeed to um, uh, be make better drugs and provide access to drugs to patients. And one of them is related to cystic fibrosis. So actually in 2015 was the first time that a patient with cystic fibrosis got access to a drug based on an organoid assay in collaboration with our uh, collaborators in the UMCU uh, Children's Hospital. And in 2017, we uh, started running, again, collaborating with the same group, um, a clinical trial in which organoids are guiding uh, the treatment that uh, that uh, that patients for his for cystic fibrosis uh, should receive. And in the area of oncology, we have another relevant milestone that it's that um, um, we have uh, so a compound that was developed. Uh, preclinically using uh, patient-derived organoids was entering in a phase one clinical trial, um, being uh, indeed this 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 compound, uh, the first um, drug developed. Um, yeah, as I say, using patient-derived organoids. So and, and all these milestones and and the mission of our organization to translate this uh, platform um, as a relevant platform to uh, provide solutions for, for improving drug development is uh, making us um, to be able to expand and, and grow and, and, and keep developing this technology. So in this slide, I'm just summarizing the key aspects of the organoids that, uh, that we are working in our organization. As mentioned, very importantly, to distinguish from other systems, they are based on the identification of adult stem cells. And then these organoids are physiologically relevant. They represent and mimic the physiology of the tissue that they are derived from. They are genetically and phenotypically stable. They have a high predictive value of patient response. And I'll show you some data during today's presentation. But very importantly, you can work with them at the same level that you will work or comparable level that you will work um, uh, when using conventional 2D cell lines. They're expandable for large screens. They can be genetically uh, modified. And very importantly, they have a very high establishment efficiency, meaning that with organoids, we can increase the population of patients or, or, or disease models that, uh, that we can represent uh, in the clinic. Uh, so actually, as mentioned, our organization was founded with the mission of bringing solutions to industry to improve the drug development pipeline. So we have uh, interactions in which uh, we develop, uh, we have custom model assay development. So if there is a need for a specific assay or a specific organoid model, we can develop it um, uh, for the clients. We also have uh, conventional drug screens activities to, to test the activity of any compound that has been already developed and also um, uh, develop co-clinical drug development in which uh, uh, we offer the possibility to uh, generate organoids from patients that are in a clinical trial to uh, validate and, and, and identify biomarkers um, uh, for these uh, campus. Uh, so in this slide, we show a bit of the, um, the how we build our biobanks and how we work uh, with these models. So um, as mentioning, we get access to patient material either by a biopsy or resection and because of the high efficiency uh, we can represent uh, many different 
patient population for um, for many kind of diseases. We can we establish these organoids in the lab. Uh, then during the expansion, we do a proper characterization of these models, also some uh, QC standards to 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 reach the the standards of industry when working with cellular models in the lab. Uh, we generate our master cell banks and working cell banks to make sure that we represent and we have sufficient amount of material for each of the patients that we represent uh, on an organoid as an avatar. And then this is the material that we use for either our camp on a screen or um, acid development projects that, uh, that we can offer as services. So actually one of the key aspects of, of, the, of the organoids are part of the obvious ones in terms of um, uh, representing better the heterogeneity of the tissue and the disease uh, uh, that, that, that they come from when the organoid is generated is also the predictive value so that organoids can predict the, the treatment response of the patients. So uh, actually we are now collaborating in, in clinical trials in which uh, we are getting um, uh, from patients that enter in, in a study, in this case uh, patients that are treated because of metastatic colorectal cancer, before they enter into a a treatment line, we get a sample of tissue to establish the organoid culture and then a screen for the standard of care uh, drugs to see what is the response of the organoid uh, to, the, to the drugs. And then uh, we follow up the, the response in the clinic of the patient after um, uh, the treatment. And this is an example of a patient that uh, um, receive a specific treatment uh, for three months and uh, we could see a reduction of the lesion, meaning that the patient was responding on the clinic. And actually when we compare the clinical response uh, with the organoid response for each of these individual patients, we can see a high correlation uh, response between the clinic and the organoids, um, uh, yeah, proving uh, this uh, predictive value. Now we started this collaboration. We have uh, some um, uh, numbers of, of patients, but we are aiming to, to have this correlation with a larger number of, of patients for this specific indication to, to uh, increase the robustness and the confidence on, the, on these models predicting uh, the patient response. And um, again, with this uh, with this value of, of being a clinically relevant preclinical model, uh, we um, enforce the value of these patient-derived organoids to be used in uh, preclinical phases. So actually, the next slides I'm going to share with you is, uh, is some examples and collaborations in which uh, we have um, yeah used this platform to develop uh, uh, new drugs. Uh, but before um, one of the um, uh, efforts that our organization uh, put on the, on the past years was to be able to scale up and perform screens with organoids in a, a comparable level of what you will do um, uh, with conventional 2D cell lines. So this is an example of a collaboration in which we were able to screen up to 12,000 single data points per organoid line uh, in order to run what it could be um, conventional um, uh, drug discovery uh, project in which you screen a large number of compounds in a limited number of organoids and then by selecting um, uh, uh, positive um, uh, hits uh, um, from the larger screen, you validate these hits and then by additional screens in multiple organoid uh, cultures, we can then start identifying a specific leads. So we were able to perform uh, this, this screen. And just to show you a couple um, of, of relevant data is that um, when we were performing these uh, large um, uh, screens, as mentioned, we were able to run 
up to 12,000 single data points uh, that you can see the, repro the reproducibility between different biological replicates was uh, high. And when a compound was impacting viability on replicate three, we could also see the same uh, response or the same effect in, in the uh, replicate one. And also importantly, when we evaluate the Z prime factor of these uh, larger screens, we were getting values comparable to what it's uh, obtained and expected when performing these two uh, uh, into the uh, uh, cell lines screen. So in this sense, we are already able to develop middle throughput screens with um, thousands of compounds in organoid lines. But very importantly is that when we start doing this uh, work between heat and lead um, uh, validation and identification, we can see the robustness and the reproducibility of the data that we uh, generate with these screens because um, these are two different uh, patient-derived uh, uh, organoids from colorectal cancer samples and the normal uh, match um, organoids for each of these patients. And we can see the specificity of a specific compound in the tumor models um, uh, versus the normal tissue and how when we repeat the same experiment six months uh, later, uh, we can observe uh, and reproduce the same results. So we are able to build a robust platform that allows um, uh, constant evaluation of compounds uh, because uh, we are able to uh, maintain and reproduce the, the response of the organoids in multiple uh, time points. And actually, importantly, one of the beauties of these models is that, as I indicated here, we have the norm. We are able to develop also the normal counterpart of these tumor organoids, so we can see indeed the tumor specificity uh, of the compounds uh, by comparing the response of normal and, and tumor uh, samples. Uh, so at the beginning, I also mentioned as a one of our milestones um, uh, that uh, there was in 2018, the first uh, compound developed using organoids um, that was moved into a clinical phase. Uh, and this is the, the results of this, uh, of, this, um, of this program. It was a, a, a collaboration between different uh, organizations. But in principle, uh, Merus uh, was a company that wanted to develop a bispecific antibody able to kill um, or to re prevent the growth of tumor cells. And then uh, organoids were used as a screening platform to identify uh, this bispecific antibody. So actually, this is uh, the results, some of the results of this uh, collaboration in this uh, consortium. And uh, again, we follow the same uh, process that, that shown before, like a screening a large number of molecules in a small number of organoids, and then start increasing uh, after identifying certain hits, increase the number of organoids to screen uh, to end up identifying indeed an, an optimal bispecific antibody that indeed was moved, uh, as mentioned, into a clinical basis. This is one of the results that we obtained where we could see how this lead candidate had an important had a significant impact reducing um, uh, the growth of organoids because uh, inducing more apoptosis into uh, colorectal organoids compared to any other uh, molecules that were tested and definitely overperforming um, uh, against what will be a reference compound that is currently used in the clinic that is uh, cetuximab. So just to define a bit more, what is this uh, bispecific antibody? Uh, these are antibodies that have two different arms, and each of these arms are able to recognize different proteins. One of the arms were meant to design to identify a stem cell marker. So we have LGR5, but also LGR4, LGR6, uh, RNA43 as possible alternative to identify stem cells uh, in the or cancer stem cells in the tumor. And the second arm 
uh, was meant to identify um, a relevant um, uh, uh, tyrosine kinase uh, receptors that are that have a role in um, stimulating the proliferation of epithelial cells like EGF receptor or R3. And actually the, the combination uh, that, that of this lead compound was indeed that one arm was identifying LGR5 as a stem cell marker and the other arm was uh, the identification or, or the recognition of EGF receptor. So in this sense, Etuximab was a reference uh, clinical compound because in this case, Etuximab is targeting EGF uh, receptor. So actually also by the characterization and the analysis of the organoids, we could understand a bit the mechanism of action of how this uh, bispecific antibody was able to impact the proliferation of, of the organoids and this because of the internalization in the tumor organoids, but not in the normal organoids of uh, the complex um, uh, EGF receptor and, and LGR5. Actually, very interesting when we were testing the activity of this uh, bispecific antibody called MCL158, uh, we could see that even tumor organoids with mutations on, on, on KRAS pathway uh, were able to respond uh, to the treatment, uh, something that uh, cetuximab uh, campaign is not able to, um, uh, to, to, to impact this, uh, in the same extent. Um, so this opens, um, uh, you know, the, the, the application of, of, of colorectal cancers that can be treated with this, uh, with this bispecific antibody. Uh, importantly, the screens performed again using organoids were validated by a screening on also uh, PDXO models, so meaning that uh, most models were injected uh, uh, with a tumor organoid uh, subcutaneously. So we generated um, a, a, a xenotransplant uh, model, and then we could see that when uh, the mice were treated with MCL uh, MCL 158, we saw better response uh, and a um, more significant reduction of the growth of the tumor compared to cetuximab and, and to the control situation, and actually having a significant uh, impact on the span life of the, uh, of the, of the mice. So actually with this data, the MEDUS uh, apply um, uh, to uh, be able to, to, to run the first uh, phase one clinical trial of these samples. And actually we're quite excited to share uh, some preliminary data that was also uh, presented recently on the AACR meeting in, in Orlando last month, in wherein patients with head and neck cancer Already on the phase one clinical trial, where they are just evaluating the safety of the of the campaign, they could see that uh, patients respond to the uh, to the treatment with this campaign, reducing uh, the size of the tumors that uh, actually were not responding to previous uh, treatments that these patients were receiving. So this data is quite um, encouraging and exciting because um, it's definitely uh, supporting to move towards um, phase two clinical trials since uh, the, 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 the toxicity of the campaign was tolerated by patients, but we were already able to see a positive impact on or, or certain efficacy of the campaign on, on patients and taking into account that the screens were done in colorectal cancer organoids, but now we have also uh, in vivo patient data on head and neck uh, cancers in which both have in common the expression of LGR5 in the, in the, in the tumors. Um, Medus is also extending uh, the, the number of indications where their campaign could be uh, relevant, especially on these solid tumors where, um, again, it, the, the growth of the cells depend on EGF receptor and there is expression of uh, LGR5. So this is a very 
um, nice example in which we how we have been able to support in this case Merus the development of a compound and moving a compound into a um, uh, clinical phase in a relatively reduced time uh, around five years uh, was all this uh, collaboration of uh, generating the organoid biobank and screening the compounds uh, to move uh, a compound into a clinical phase. Another area where we also believe that our technology can have an impact is uh, when developing drugs for immunotherapy. And uh, the reason is uh, in addition of the characteristics that we already mentioned when talking about using organoids to screen small molecules, like uh, how they represent the patient heterogeneity and the tumor heterogeneity, and the fact that we can have the normal uh, counterpart. So we can also evaluate um, off-target effects or toxic effects of these Tampons. Importantly, with organoids, we are able to um, preserve patient-specific tumor antigens that cannot be represented when working with cell lines or tumor models developed by, by animal models. And uh, that because we can co-culture these tumor organoids within immune cells, uh, we can set up a, a, a human system in which both immune cells and, 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 and tumor cells are coming from human patients, either in an autologous or an allogenic system. And that, uh, again, we can perform uh, the same level of screens and activities that, that we have shown um, uh, for the small molecules. So actually, the last uh, year, we've been putting an effort to create what we call the immune oncology biobanks, in which uh, we are um, establishing not only the organoids from the epithelial cells present on the resected tissue, uh, but also we can isolate uh, T cells, NKI cells, uh, fibroblasts uh, to have a collection in an autologous system of relevant cell types for, this, uh, for the development of these uh, immune oncology related compounds. Or we can also get uh, blood from these patients in case that we need to get um, uh, other uh, uh, cell types like uh, microphages. So we can put these organoids in co-cultures with T cells and either cellular products, uh, if we have uh, CAR T's or engineered T cells, but also different type of uh, immune oncology uh, uh, compounds. And we have uh, data uh, testing uh, by specific uh, antibodies, uh, uh, T cell engagers to activate T cells for killing uh, organoids. Um, and then we are developing readouts uh, to either being able to measure the death of the organoids by imaging, the characterization of the T cell population after the exposure to the compound and to the organoids by flow analysis, or um, uh, you know the analysis of cytokines present in the co-culture to understand what is happening from the epithelial and the, and the immune uh, component or, or whatever other cell type. So uh, as mentioned, we have set up this platform to test already by specifics, to test engineer T cells. And we are also now, because we are able to set up these autologous systems to evaluate the activity of checkpoint inhibitors. But I'll show you uh, an example of how we've been using uh, this platform for um, identifying the activity of engineered T cells. Um, this is a co-culture of, again, normal organoids and tumor organoids with either engineered T cells that were develop um, 
to uh, kill specifically tumor cells. And we can see that indeed, uh, when, when co-culturing with engineered these cells, we see that the tumor organoids are killed while the normal organoids are intact. And then that nothing happens uh, for normal and tumors as a control condition for the non-transduced uh, T cell. And we could uh, support this uh, observation in terms of the organoid uh, killing with the presence of interferon gamma in the presence of the co-culture of the engineered T cells with the tumor organoids um, um, as, and not in the normals, uh, indicating that there was indeed an activation uh, of the T cells. So actually, this was a, a first uh, pilot experiment because these engineered T cells were uh, already designed and developed to treat some kind of liquid uh, cancers. Uh, but um, there was an interest from this customer to understand if these T cells will also, sorry, these engineered T cells will be able to also target um, uh, solid tumors. So after this pilot experiment in which we could uh, evaluate and prove that we could measure the tumor specificity of these engineered T cells in this case of colorectal cancer organoids, we run a kind of a basket trial uh, project in which uh, we expose these engineered T cells to normal and tumor organoids from different um, uh, therapeutic areas like breast, colorectal, uh, lung, head and neck, ovarian, and pancreatic cancer. And after the screen, we could identify that indeed uh, ovarian and colon organoids were having um, a significant response to uh, the effect of uh, to, to be co-culture with their engineered T cells. There was a reduction on the organoids, uh, killing of the organoids, and also a high activation uh, by interferon gamma of the gamma delta, the gamma delta cells. So actually, uh, with this information, together with additional data package, um, uh, Hadeta uh, get uh, enough data to move uh, to exploring a clinical trial, indeed the impact of these uh, engineered T cells in either ovarian or colorectal cancers. So this is again another example in which uh, we could support um, uh, uh, a client uh, to develop data that that uh, that um, that yeah that helps uh, to move compounds uh, relatively relatively soon uh, into a, a clinical phases. So with this, I'll finalize my presentation in which um, uh, I was just describing the characteristics of the organoids that we work with, these adult stem cell derived uh, organoids uh, from patients in which we can use on all this preclinical phase uh, to perform a screens either for small or large molecules or more complex uh, type of drugs like immunotherapy drugs and how these organoids can help us to identify uh, biomarkers that can support a patient stratification to identify on a clinical trials uh, to support clinical trials uh, data and definitely and ultimately we are also uh, ambitioning uh, how this assay, uh, organoid assay uh, develop, um, sorry, organoid based assays uh, can support um, uh, for the identification of the best treatment uh, for patients uh, for compounds that has been already um, uh, uh, registered and labeled for patients, for treating patients. And very importantly, we use that by you, we believe that by using this relevant, clinically relevant uh, model on the preclinical phases with organoids, we can shorten uh, the time and the investment that is required to have uh, compounds that can be moved into the uh, clinical phases. So with this, I will finalize my presentation and I thank you again for uh, your attendance and, and looking forward to have some discussions during the Q&A session. Thank you so much for your time.
Well, thank you very much, Carolina and Sylvia, both for your excellent presentations. Um, we have a few questions from the uh, from the audience. Uh, if any, if anyone else has a question, please uh, type it into the question box, which appears on the top right of your screen, and I'll I'll put them uh, to Carolina and Sylvia. So, um, first question: um, uh, Do you have paired samples from different areas of the gastrointestinal tract? from the same patient? Not sure who would like to take that one. I think that um, I will take that one. And mm -hmm. thank you for the question. Yes, we do have a pair samples in our GI Biobank. Uh, we have some uh, colon uh, paired with ileum, and then others will be colon paired with duodenum. And coming soon, we will have also our colorectal uh, cancer biobank. And in some of those uh, samples, we will have uh, the tumor as well as the per uh, normal adjacent uh, tissues uh, derived periods. Okay, thank you, Carolina. Um, and then the uh, next question from Alberto who says Carolina mentioned higher variability in one of as one of the limitations of organoids how can this be minimized in order to use organoids as part of drug drug screening Sylvia do you want to start with that or Oh, yes. Uh, sorry, because you mentioned Catherine. I thought that uh, she would be... Uh... <laughs> I, sorry, I was just reading it as it was. No, you go ahead, please. So can you repeat it, please? Okay, so the question was, uh, Carolina mentioned high variability as one of the limitations ah, okay. of organoids. How can this be minimized in order to use organoids as part of drug screening? Yeah, so um, we believe that it's important to standardize uh, the protocols to work with the organoids and also the reagents, as Carolina has mentioned, to have a high quality, high performance reagents that can maintain and, 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 and allow the establishment of the organoids. Because when this happens, as, uh, as some data I've shown on the presentation, when you perform the screens in a, in a standard way, uh, you can get reproducible data in terms of uh, observing the same response over and over time. We understand that the challenge of using organoids is that using different lines from different patients, we get different responses. But indeed, this is the reality that we are facing when treating patients. And we just need to keep learning how to interpret and how to analyze all this data. Okay, Carolina, was there anything you wanted to add there or you're happy with that? Um, I think that as, as Sylvia mentioned, um, I, uh, our uh, job as uh, Merck and Millipore is to provide high quality reagents and then uh, this is going to be very important in order to minimize this uh, variation between experiments and between uh, PDOs. So we have a nice portfolio of uh, media available, and that also may help um, to control variability. Okay, thank you. Um, so the next question, uh, Sylvia, maybe you want to take this one. Uh, this is from John, who asks, in your primary and secondary screening studies, how many individual organoids are you analyzing per treatment? With the heterogeneity of individual organoids, is there an advantage of increasing the number of individual organoids analyzed per compound or dose? Quite a yeah. mouthful there. <laughs> uh, so I hope that I understand exactly the question. So as, as we were explaining, we started screening with a limited number of 
patient-derived organoids, and, 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 and we can perform this dose response. What it's important, because I can see that sometimes when people working with IPS-derived organoids, they think on this individual single organoid. In our screening activities in each well, and we perform this, this screens in 384 well format, we have around 300 400 organoids per well, in order, in this case, to represent uh, all the uh, probably tumor heterogeneity present on the organoids. So just to make it clear, we don't screen single organoids per well per compound. We have a representation of, of hundreds of organoids in each well. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so uh, the next question uh, from Chloe, who says, possibly a naive question in terms of clinical application, how uh, can organoid be administered to human patients for treatment? Not sure who would like to take that one. I can take this, and, and I think that it's an application of organoid technology that we have not presented on, 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 on presentations to date, right? But actually, indeed, the fact that we can establish normal organoids, we can expand normal tissue, opens an avenue for this technology for regenerative medicine, right? We can think about patients with a genetic metabolic disease in the liver. We should be able to get a biopsy, establish the liver organoid, you know, with Cas9 technology, modify and repair this gene, and then bring back uh, these now um, uh, repair cells back to the patients. As any aspect of regenerative medicine, there is uh, still um, a lot of work on the final step of the culture of these organoids to be able to, to be transplanted, transplanted back to patients. As Carolina mentioned on her presentation, we still depend a lot on these animal-derived ECMs uh, that they can kind of secure and promote the proliferation of the organoids. But this is a product that will not allow to transfer uh, these organoids back to patients. So there is a completely different area of development and improvement in technologies to make possible what uh, Chloe is asking for. Okay, thank you. Um, so the next question from uh, June, who asks for screening, what was the typical uh, Z value for the assay and also what type of plate do you recommend? I hope I got that right, the Z value. <laughs> Yeah, so I can take this one. So we normally use ultra low attachment plates, um, 384 format to run the screens. The organoids in a are in a kind of semi-suspension uh, uh, um, media where there is presence of matrix gel to secure and ensure the 3D structure and the polarization. And normally in, when we perform our, our screens, um, we have as a threshold a minimum set prime score of 0.4. Uh, and then from there, I mean, the average value that we get in the experiments is around 6.5, 7, 8, uh, uh, sorry, 0, 06, 0, 08 uh, Z prime score. Thank you. Okay, and then we have a question from Veronica who asks, how do I overcome short viability of PCA organoids? Not sure about. I'm not sure what. PCA. Okay. Well, any questions that we can't uh, answer um, on, during the webinar, we, we, we can answer um, by email. So, Veronica, we'll get back to you about that one. Uh, another question. Um, so, we have two questions from Elena uh, that are quite related. Uh, one was, does Hub offer custom models in collaboration with Merck in Europe? And the second was, will the immunoncology biobanks be available through Merck? Uh, uh, we are not currently offering uh, those um, through Merck, uh, but I'm sure that uh, you can contact uh, Sylvia and the hub to get 
more information of how to get access uh, through uh, Hub to those models. Okay. Yeah, and, and maybe I can add on there that uh, uh, we are developing these IU biobanks, and uh, in the same way that we don't have any doubt on the expandability of the organoids, and this is why uh, uh, we are able to share them, and also through partnerships with Merck, uh, you know, these organoid biobanks are being built, and, and the models are available for researchers. We are still ex um, evaluating the spendability of these T cell components. So, uh, we, I mean, they are not available now, and, and, and these are protocols that we don't share with Mer for them to also be able to, to, to make available these products because we are still evaluating their expandability and how well we can maintain this tumor reactivity and, 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 and so on. So, it's still a product under development. Okay, thank you. Uh, just to go back to Veronica's question, actually, I read that wrong because the PCA was actually pro uh, prostate cancer. So she asked, how do I overcome the short viability of prostate cancer organoids? <laughs> Any thoughts there? I can start addressing this question. Uh, we actually, I'm, I'm not sure what she means about viability, but definitely um, prostate cancer is, is a biobank that we don't have uh, available in our resources because indeed it's a challenging tumor organoid model to develop. And the main reason is that in the current culture conditions, the normal cells have a growth advantage versus the tumor cells. And uh, it's very difficult to get a primary resection in which there is no contamination of normal cells. So what we have experienced is a challenge to establish uh, these tumor uh, prostate uh, cancer models. But I think that that that, uh, that if the um, person that has asked the question follows the protocols that uh, Carolina has mentioned from Merck, uh, I'm sure that they will provide the quality expected in case that they've been able to cryopreserve uh, to keep them uh, alive after uh, putting them in culture. Okay, thank you. Um, right, so we have another question. When should I use recombinant proteins versus conditioned media? Who would like to take that? I can take that. Um, we recommend uh, switching uh, to recombinant proteins as your source of uh, the growth factors when you need uh, to have a very controlled environment and you need to maybe have a defined media composition. Uh, however, the conditioned media is a very good uh, option uh, during expansion uh, because it, it provides a really high uh, activity. Is that we have a very controlled production where we assure you about the activity and the consistency between uh, different lots. So we, we suggest that you work with the conditioned media as much as possible. Also, it will help a little bit in reducing the cost of the um, experiments. But we realize that there are some experiments that will require a very controlled composition, and that's when you may want to switch to uh, recombinant proteins. Okay, uh, thank you. I think we've got time for a couple more. Uh, so this next question from uh, Tariq, who asks, can um, can we model immune cell infiltration and immune mediated tissue damage using organoids, for example, colitis, multiple sclerosis? So in all this uh, combination of organoids with T cells, we have started with uh, tumor models uh, because it was quite uh, obvious and, and easy to start. Uh, but what I can say is that we have also been able to isolate um, uh, tumor resident uh, mono, mo, uh, mononuclear cells. So, uh, 
T cells present in, in healthy tissue, also in inflammatory tissues. Uh, if you get access to tissue from patients with with um, uh, IBD disease or, or COPD, so in principle the resources are there, and and setting up the right experiments to be able to evaluate, uh, you know, this crystal between. Um, uh, the epithelial cells and the immune components is something that we are developing, uh, but we but we believe that this is a right plat platform to study this type of diseases and, and interactions. Okay, thank you. Um, so let's have a look. Uh, a question from Dolores: Do tumor-derived organoids have cancer stem cell markers? Well, I mean, LGR5 is considered uh, a stem cell marker not only for normal tissue, but also for uh, cancerous stem cells. So we can also uh, observe the presence of, 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 this, uh, of this marker. So in principle, yeah, if the tumor has the capacity to proliferate, it's because they are still uh, present, at least some of these cancerous stem cells. Thank you. Right. I think we'll go for uh, one final question. Um, Carolina, you uh, touched on this uh, during your presentation. So the question is, if different cell lines have different pro proliferation rates, how do I know when to passage? Yeah, of course. Um, we are talking, most of, of our uh, presentation was about uh, patient-derived organoids and just the fact that they are coming from uh, different people, uh, the proliferation rate is going to be different between samples. And that's uh, one of the things that you need to keep in mind. We do our best to provide information specific for each line about uh, the timing between passages. But I also show in some of my slides a little bit of uh, the tips that you can include in your uh, workflow in order to look for the morphology and the appearance of the organoids in order to decide when is the best time to pass. Super, thank you very much. So that brings us to the end of the webinar. As I said, we will endeavor to respond to any unanswered questions uh, by email after. Thank you again, uh, Carolina and Sylvia, for very illuminating presentations and a great discussion. And thanks also to the sponsor, Merck KGAA Darmstadt Germany. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Merck KGAA Darmstadt Germany and Bitesize Bio. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bitesize Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listen In series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.